hello and welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. Mystic School works too. <laughs> That's really what it's about. Metaphysics and mysticism in the Ageless Wisdom tradition. In fact, that's rather our theme for the day today. Theosophy, then and now. For theosophy, if you take the word apart, theo and sophia, you have a religion of wisdom. And said another way, a prisca theologia, which means the ancient teachings or the ancient and timeless wisdom teachings that really transcend the dogma of religion. Theosophy today will discuss in a couple of ways the small t theosophy of the Wineland mystics, the German mysticism, Christian mysticism of uh, the early 1300s through the Renaissance era, We'll also talk a little bit about the new thought movement that began in the early 19th century in New England in the United States and how all of that led to the founding of the Theosophical Society in New York State in 1875 by Madame Blavatsky, a Russian mystic. And um, Theosophy is also part of the milieu of Alice Bailey and um, Krishnamurti, if you're familiar with the modern capital T Theosophical Society. And how all of that, the Rhineland mystics or German mysticisms of the pre-Renaissance era, the New Thought Movement, and capital T Theosophy, how all of that led to what's often called today New Age. And for those of you in Los Angeles, for example, certainly you know the Bodhi Tree Bookstore. It's it's quite well known in the Southwest. In fact, in, in many ways, it's known all around the world, a single bookstore. Uh, that's pretty incredible. And, and what holds the Bodhi Tree together? What binds it all together? Are there books there on religion? Well, most definitely. But beyond the idea of a place where you could go to buy books or do research on what we would have to call comparative religion, there is this larger overarching philosophy of mysticism and metaphysics, which speaks less to religion per se than to an individual's personal relationship with the divine and with his own overshadowing soul. And this is where today's program really will address what may be the greatest heresy of all to both Protestants and Catholics, especially Catholics, and that's the idea of an overshadowing soul, that each of us as mortal beings, as separated fleshy objects, are illumined and animated by a higher self that is already in heaven, that was born in heaven, that fell to earth, if you will, though deliberately, and uh, has the task of waking up to discover through development of its conscious awareness that it is, in fact, the soul on the higher plane. 
In other words, your soul is already in heaven. That terrifies the church. And back in the days of the Inquisition, you could be tortured, waterboarded, pilloried, burned at the stake, fingernails pulled out, uh, witches put in the dunk tank to see if they would float. Uh, all of the superstitious, anti-science, anti-logic uh, nonsense. There's a great book by Umberto Eco that I recommend. It was made into a wonderful movie also called The Name of the Rose. And one of the things that I liked about the book and the movie was the way they portrayed the rigid dogma of the church uh, in that day, but largely even today, as uh, as holding that logic was of the devil any time it contradicted a teaching of the church. Uh, the church didn't argue. It just said, if you disagree with us, no matter how reasonable, um, you're a... Uh, you're in league with Satan, and your work is of the devil. And many of them say that even today, uh, for the Pope is infallible. He used to be a member of the Nazi youth, but he's, uh, <laughs> you know, he's infallible now. Uh, still runs the Office of Inquisition. I don't know if you know the Vatican maintains an Office of Inquisition, uh, but they do. And uh, so... That's just a little overview of what we're going to do today. We're going to try and squeeze a lot in, and I'm going to use a rather broad brush in my comparisons. But to understand the roots of the New Age and uh, to try to find the cohesiveness of New Age philosophy in theosophy, again, theo would mean religion, and sophia, sophie, meaning wisdom. So a theosophy needs to be translated briefly. It would be a religion uh, of, of the ancient wisdom, so the ancient teachings of all time, many of which are Gnostic. They can go back 2,000 years. Uh, Neoplatonic, uh, go back over 2,000 years. Some of them even hermetic and alchemical, going back to the ancient prehistory, the Egyptian pyramids and such. And again, people who are orthodox and dogmatic in their religion uh, are rarely aware of the relative um, links, I'll say, or the common threads that run from the ancient wisdom uh, all the way through the theosophy of the pre-Renaissance era, uh, the rediscovery of alchemy in the in, in Kabbalah and such in the European Renaissance, and then how that led to capital T theosophy and the um, new thought movement in the 19th century in the United States, which in the 20th and 21st century is so-called New Age. I hope that makes sense to you. And you may just know it generally as mysticism and metaphysics, but we're going to talk about some of the uh, some of the key concepts. And I usually just speak off the top of my head with as I do these classes and 
I'm going to do that today too, but I I did write down a couple of definitions from the internet to help us, um, especially since there are a lot of folks. I would think even in my audience here today in this class here today who have heard of the Theosophical Society, or maybe you've been to Ojai, California, where there's two or three big centers of theosophy, including Krishnamurti's organization, but also Meditation Mount. And we'll even talk a little bit about the schism or the split in the Theosophical Society around Krishnamurti that happened about... um, 40 or 50 years ago. So I think lots of you may be familiar with theosophy in the sense of a capital T theosophy or a theosophical organization. Um, Because of this split around Krishnamurti 40 or 50 years ago, there are essentially two headquarters for theosophy. One is in Pasadena, California, right in the middle of all those beautiful mansions on uh, What's that called, where the parade starts every year? I think it's Lake Street. Beautiful, big, 19th century mansions. And and one of them contains the headquarters for um, the Theosophical Society uh, West, so to speak. The uh, Krishnamurti people, the people that sort of followed him. I'll tell that story a little later. And then Wheaton, Illinois, if you're familiar with Quest Books, and many of the the published books, the old published books of Blavatsky, Annie Besant, Charles Ledbetter, uh, the early theosophical writers before Krishnamurti, um, that organization, the original Theosophical Society from 1875, is still headquartered in Wheaton, Illinois, and they have a uh, another center in Adyar, India, that is also a kind of a headquarters for all the work that they do. But I'm not too sure that very many of you know that there is a small t theosophical society, um, or better said, movement um, or organization, although, ironically, these mystics... Um, most of them Christian, again, uh, some of them Catholic priests, Jesuit teachers and preachers from the uh, pre-Renaissance, late medieval pre-Renaissance era, uh, because of their nature as mystics, they really would emphasize your personal experience with consciousness, with your awareness, with the need to develop an awareness of of who you are, a so-called higher self, something we talk about a lot on this Sunday Ageless Wisdom class, the idea that within the ultimate unity of all things, there's really two of you, the ego, which you know very well, and the many roles and characters that your ego plays, in its daily life and affairs, mostly to please or at least influence other people. But then there's also a so-called higher self, a level of expanded awareness or, or higher consciousness that we can attain through, well, the way I describe it, 
the three paths to that higher consciousness require study, which is reading books, uh, going to study groups, attending classes uh, like this, for example, and others that may be in your neighborhood or online. Study. Secondly is meditation. We'll talk a little about meditation today. Indeed, every one of these classes includes a guided imagery exercise, not a contemplation, but a kind of meditation that can take you there. Contemplation is a complete emptying of the mind. And when a mystic talks about meditation, that's usually what they're referring to, an absolute emptying of the mind, opening up the space between your thoughts and between the distraction of emotional feeling and allowing yourself to go out through the gap between thought and feeling and find out that you remain, you continue to exist. That's contemplation. And for many people, the primary goal of all meditation. But a good way to teach it, especially to Westerners, is to approach through guided imagery or visualization. And that's a method we'll be using today at the end of this uh, presentation, this class. And then the third element in the path, I think, has got to be mindfulness, to be mindfully detached and have the awareness that you are more than what you think and what you feel. Um, <laughs> for example, who doesn't know the experience of suddenly having the little uh, light bulb pop on inside of your head and you may be speaking at the time, and you suddenly interrupt yourself and you go, wait a minute, <clears throat> excuse me, wait a minute, on second thought, da-da-da-da-da-da. Well, what do you mean on second thought? Where did that come from? Right? Or if you think without speaking, I dare say we've all done that, and then looked back and said, oops, I wish I hadn't. I wish I'd been a little more conscious and made a little better choice uh, or made a choice at all about what I was going to say instead of speaking without even thinking about what I was going to say. Well, when you speak without thinking about it, without choosing your speech, who's doing the speaking? <laughs> if you have free will and you're not using it, who is? Who is that autopilot that's just running at the mouth? Or uh, a fellow I got to know pretty well, and uh, he was living in Los Angeles for a long time, and he had a stroke, and he's now living with his family back in England. The founder of the Kinks, Dave Davies, a sweet man, and uh, he, he he recorded a song three or four years ago called, uh, well, one of the lyrics, in, this isn't the title, but the lyrics included a line that said, if you're fooling yourself, who's fooling who? I think the title of the song was simply, who's fooling who? But I, I just loved it. It's, uh, it sounds like something George Harrison might have said. If you're fooling yourself, who's fooling who? George Harrison said, if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there, which is very similar. But it was Dave Davies that wrote, if you're fooling yourself, who's fooling you? Like, uh, there's more than one of you. Trust me. 
And so we'll talk about that concept uh, as well today. So let's do it rather chronologically. And first of all, challenge any idea that you may have that the Christian Inquisition, the Catholic Inquisition, uh, initiated in the 10th century, uh, and then again um, with a vengeance in the 13th century, the so-called Spanish Inquisition, when Spain really represented the Catholics because England had decided they were going to set up their own church. Um, the Spanish Inquisition and the original Inquisition um, these were not simply crusades to kill the infidels, meaning the Muslims, Islam, or um, the heathens and the pagans and uh, the people that just didn't believe in Christ. These crusades from the 10th through the 13th century, and to a lesser extent even today it could be argued, were also targeted against the Christian mystics. In southern France, for example, they came to be known as the Cathars. And if you're familiar with Holy Blood, Holy Grail, and even some of the work pulled upon in Dan Brown's book, um, um, oh my God, the name of it is escaping me now. You know the one I'm talking about. Uh, they made it into the big hit movie, Ron Howard. Um, was the novel. Oh, I'll think of it in a minute. But it pulls a lot on Holy Blood, Holy Grail, which is really a well-documented work of nonfiction. Many, many people believe that Jesus the Christ survived the crucifixion. I mean, he did show up three days later in his body and said to Thomas, yeah, it's me. You know, here I am. Put your hand in my wound and and feel my body. He had his body. And rather than presume that meant that he actually survived the crucifixion, of course, the church has taught that uh, he he was resurrected not only in spirit, but in terms of a fleshy body that he's going to take to heaven with him. And that leads to all this confusion around the Eucharist and bread and wine being literally the body and blood of the Christ, and that many Catholics don't believe in cremation because they think they need their body, that physical, fleshy, made-out-of-what-you-had-to-eat body on the other side. Could all of that come from the confusion of Christ resurrected not only in spirit, liberating his soul, but in his body as well? Others say, no, he showed up three days later, walking around, rolled away the stone, because he survived the crucifixion. And uh, that's a very strong argument, very strong argument to be made for that. And then supposedly, as the story goes, and the, the Gnostic Gospels rather suggest this is true also. That's why Christians don't like to know about the newly discovered Gospels from Nag Hammadi in the late 1940s or the Dead Sea Scrolls. They're still working out of King James from, what, 1411, the very first English translation. Hey, we got new books. Don't you want to know about these? Nah, too metaphysical, <laughs> too mystical. 
um, and uh, too Gnostic or a scene in their origin. But they all suggest that Christ and Mary moved to southern France and that that may be the Essene or the Gnostic origins of the Cathars. Christian mystics targeted by the Crusades, killed, slaughtered, murdered, that famous military saying about um, how do we know the enemy? And the general says, well, kill them all and let God sort them out. That was not... Vietnam, that was not Korea or World War II. That was the Crusades. We're killing, you know, these Crusaders are killing Christians. They said, well, how do we know the good Christians from the bad ones? And the Crusaders said, kill everybody. God will sort it out. And um, it looks like George Bush's use of the word Crusader was carefully chosen as uh, was Eric Prince, the fellow who's still a, the head of Blackwater, the mercenary army that we're continuing to pay and use in Iraq and Afghanistan, a mercenary army bigger than the GI, bigger than American forces over there. Most people still don't know about Blackwater. And the fact that the head of that organization is a born-again crusader, who literally believes in executing, slaughtering, murdering all the infidels. Well, that means not just Muslims and um, uh, Buddhists and, and, and Hindus uh, and, and others, religious people who are not Christians. Uh, the Jews are protected, that's okay. Um, but every other religion, but also the so-called mystic, the individual, is looking to find his or her own enlightenment and own path, uh, their own salvation, so to speak, through a direct encounter or experience with an elevated point of view and expanded consciousness. Even though they may love Jesus and call themselves a Christian, you know, it's likely Eric Prince and George Bush will come after you too. That's been the history of the Crusades. Okay, so it's important to know that, and I don't think most Christians do, that there have always been, even in the formation of the church in the second and third century uh, A.D., so to speak, uh, Christian mystics, even fathers of the church, who believed in the basic tenets of Christian uh, of uh, of mysticism, such as um, reincarnation, uh, karma, um, the universality of redemption. There is a, uh, a controversial position that most Christians don't believe in, that everybody is going to be saved, that there really is no hell other than the conflicts and adversities, the trials and tribulations of living as separated forms in this physical universe, this this would be hell to a mystic, um, and of course uh, the idea of a fall into incarnation would suggest that Eden, Adam and Eve, and heaven are the same place, and that the soul was created in heaven in the beginning of time, exists there perpetually as a reservoir of human souls that are then 
periodically extended into incarnation or reincarnation according to the law of karma and will in the end of time all be redeemed or all be saved. This is called universalism. Okay, uh, It's a little different than the Unitarian Universalist because they don't have the heavy Jesus influence. Um, but also Unitarian is a reference to the Trinity ultimately being one as opposed to Trinitarian. I always thought that was sort of interesting. If you ever go to a Unitarian Universalist church, you'll find people there of every religious persuasion and even of no religious persuasion. I've met atheists and agnostics at Unitarian churches, and I said, well, if you're an atheist, <laughs> why, do you, why are you here? And they said, well, we like the company. You know, everybody is welcome at a Unitarian Universalist church. But uh, universalism refers to the idea that all souls are redeemable. Um, everything is made of God, and why would God be lopping off parts and casting them away, right? In other words, everything is sacred, everything is holy. <clears throat> everything is atoned or at one. Isn't that a nice little play on words? Atone or atonement, you can read as at one meant. So the idea that all souls return in terms of their conscious awareness uh, to the ground of God, there is no hell. So these guys existed. And again, I guess if we're going to start with the Rhineland mystics, of the early 14th century then as the early small t theosophists then let me just read uh, a little paragraph or two uh, to define this uh, German mysticism or Rhineland mysticism is sometimes called Dominican mysticism and it was a late medieval pre-renaissance Christian mystical movement especially prominent within the Dominican order and also in Germany, although its origins can be traced back to Hildegard of Bingen. It is mostly represented by Meister Eckhart, Johannes Toller, Jacob Boma, and Henry Suso, uh, and there are a few others, <clears throat> including an organization from the early 14th century called Friends of God. Again, Christians, they loved Jesus. Many of them were Catholic priests, but the church was not at all happy with their particular interpretations of the gospel. Remember, the church has never been, Catholic church has never been that interested in the New Testament or the gospels. Not that many Catholics even own Bibles. Uh, that was part of the whole idea of a Protestant or Protestant Reformation. Was that can't we get back to studying what Christ had to say? Well, Christ never wrote anything down. Nobody really knows for sure what he had to say. But uh, some of these guys came along 50, 60, 70 years later, 100 years, 200 years later, began to write and uh, record what they knew, and then 
pulled all of that together in, oh, I would say the second to the fifth century A.D. is really when the Catholic Church was first uh, formed. Check out a, a early church father named Origen, for example, or Augustine, and you find that these guys really are mystics as well. Their approach to the understanding of Christ was more in the Gnostic or the Essene uh, traditions, where, for one thing, uh, women were honored as equals to men. You can see clearly that even today the church will not recognize this, uh, that there's something inferior about women in the Catholic Church. Um, especially if you've ever been to Catholic school and you've watched the nuns interface with the priests. Again, I'm quoting from, uh, I believe this is a Wikipedia source, yeah. I like Wikipedia. Um, you, have, you have to take everything from Wikipedia with a little grain of salt, but I thought this was pretty well written. The movement often seems to stand in stark contrast with scholasticism in German theology, uh, scholasticism, I should mention, was attempts by Thomas Aquinas in the 10th century A.D. to create a Christian religious philosophy that was as fundamental to all philosophy as math and science was to all physics and studies of motion and electromagnetism and such, uh, to sort of create a universal philosophy around the teachings of, of Christ. That's known as scholasticism. Uh, viewed as a predecessor of the Reformation, and again, here it's likely that this led Martin Luther and others to finally nail the, the letter to the door of the church and say, we're out of here. We're, we're Protestants. We're going to form our own non-Catholic branch of Christianity. And then, of course, they split into a million people, a million, a million branches. Uh, the contrast becomes very apparent. And for example, the use of an approachable vernacular stands in stark contrast to the constrained Latin of the scholastics. This was an attempt, again, to make religious philosophy, Christian mysticism, available to everybody, even though... The vast majority of people in Europe and the so-called known world at that time uh, could not read. Um, you know, if you were to go to Oxford or Harvard, uh, not Harvard, Oxford or Cambridge, in the early Renaissance period, you might see 500 books total in their library, and all of them uh, hand-printed until Gutenberg started uh, setting type, very important uh, period. Uh, approachable vernacular stands in stark contrast to the Latin of the scholastics, and the increased focus on the laity stands in stark contrast to the more deeply sacramental understanding of the church. So it's an idea of making religion more accessible and more approachable. Um, and again, the mystics are the ones who get credit for this. Instead of the church being between you and God, so you serve the church and the church serves God, the mystics always thought, let's get rid of the church altogether or have organizations like the church serve the individual 
and the community, which then serve God directly. Like, let's get the church out of the way. We talked a little about this last week. And these elements are both taken up and transformed in the writings of Martin Luther. German mysticism can also be viewed as a practical application of scholasticism, though Meister Eckhart is most well-known for his popular German sermons. He also wrote a lengthy philosophical exposition of the same teachings in Latin. So he's trying to bridge the gap, right, between the church and the ordinary common folks. Some scholars have read him, meaning Meister Eckhart, as a rather orthodox Thomist, seeing his mysticism as flowing naturally from established teachings, um, but I'm not going to get into that kind of detail. I'm going to talk about Eckhart and some of the main characteristics of this Rhineland mysticism or German mysticism beginning in the early 1300s, late 1200s, early 1300s. One, I've already mentioned, the focus on laymen as well as clerics, that everybody should have access to this knowledge. Um, secondly, an emphasis on instruction and preaching. Uh, a downplaying of ascetism, which is the... Um, anti-materialism, uh, the embracing of poverty, and, um, well, that's probably a good way to say it, embracing poverty as a, as a, a non-materialism as a path to spirituality. That was downplayed. Though it was understood by these guys that materialism could get in the way. And certainly the church never had a problem with being materialistic. Um, the emergence of this German mysticism or early theosophy also had a focus, um, for it was, after all, Christian mysticism. On the New Testament, less on the Old Testament, notice how so many fundamentalists, evangelicals, or born-agains today call themselves Christian, but they'll quote the Old Testament before the New Testament. They want the Ten Commandments in the schoolroom, they're not interested, it seems, in the Beatitudes. Um, and that, that's, that's part of evangelicalism. A focus on Christ rather than the church and the use of the vernacular, common language, rather than Latin or Hebrew. Okay? Now, Meister Eckhart is really where you have to begin. And I want to share just a couple quotes from Eckhart. Um, this fellow really was, as a priest, teaching in church and preaching in church, teaching at a major Catholic university in Germany, found guilty of heresy in 75 counts. The Catholic Inquisition, the, the, Crusader, the Crusaders, right, found Eckhart, a Catholic priest, guilty of heresy. This is what I meant earlier by don't believe the Crusades or the Inquisitions was only out to get Muslims and pagans. They are after the Cathars and the mystics and anybody that didn't conform to this very orthodox, ultra-conservative view of Christianity. Uh, one of the biggest crimes, apparently, that Eckhart committed was to tell his congregation one Sunday 
that they should never wish that they had not sinned. And the church just went crazy because you're supposed to feel very, very guilty of all and very bad for all of your sins. And Meister Eckhart, well, his his position was, well, how else are you going to learn? After all, sin means to miss the mark. It's a big oops. It almost always means, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do that, but, you know, I was tempted, I was drunk. I was, uh, you know, overcome by lust and love, and I regret it now, but, uh, you know, I'll learn. And Eckhart was okay with that, so never wish that you hadn't sinned, provided you learn from your mistake. Good enough to get waterboarded and uh, burned at the stake uh, by the Catholic Church. Now, uh, Eckhart had the last laugh because he died of old age before the... Inquisition could torture him and kill him, but uh, that's one of the better-known heresies of the day. But here's just a couple of quotes uh, from Eckhart that I wanted to share with you. Um, in no particular order, uh, listen to this. The eye which I, I think this is rather famous. The eye with which I see God is the same eye with which God sees me. Think about that. It's one of those barbershop mirror riddles. All right. This is arguing very clearly against the popular idea held even today that God is very far away and separated from its creation. Eckhart said we are one and the same. He said the eye with which I see God is the same eye with which God sees me. Now, he's not talking about physical eyeballs, is he? He's talking about the so-called third eye. What did Christ say? When, when the eye becomes single, the body is filled with light. Well, we better get that out of there. We don't want any references to, to Hinduism and yoga and their chakra system. It's the Ashina Center, for God's sakes. It's the pituitary gland it's the mind's eye that sees when we close our physical eyes and turn away from the distraction of the physical world that's where you find the spiritual world here's another Eckhart quote the knower and the known are one simple people imagine that they should see God as if he stood here and they over there I read that wrong. As if he stood there and they here. This is not so. God and I, we are one in knowledge. The knower and the known are one. It's good for you. Stretch your forehead a little bit. This is stuff that a lot of us so-called New Agers that are attracted to this kind of a class and the study, stuff you feel, stuff that makes perfect sense to you, but you thought you had to go to Hinduism or Buddhism or Eastern philosophy to get. That's what Blavatsky did. We'll come to the new theosophists in just a minute. And uh, a couple other by Eckhart. All God wants of man is a peaceful heart. And similarly, do exactly what you would do if you felt most secure. Well, that's a description of meditation. 
feeling safe and peaceful. Right? Eckhart's also most known, I think probably his most famous quote, is the quotation that goes, if the only prayer you ever said was one of gratitude, that would suffice. Brilliant man, ostracized, condemned by the church he loved so much because he could just not ignore the inspiration of contemplation. He he understood the bigger picture, and he felt that everybody, or most people, many people certainly, had the capacity to go there, and that's what he wanted to do, rather democratize uh, Christianity in its time. About a hundred years later, Jacob Boma comes along. This is a fascinating story. I wish I had more time. He was a shoemaker, and one day, uh, sunlight hit a pewter plate in such a way as to cause him to become fascinated. That's a good word for it. Fascinated by the glare of the sunlight on this pewter plate, and he took a breath, and he exhaled, and he relaxed, and in a sense fell into, not physically, but mentally and emotionally, fell into what he called the aurora, the reflection of that light and the fascination that created an altered state of expanded awareness, an epiphany that changed him forevermore, and he never looked at the world the same way after that. So he was an early theosophist, a so-called small-t theosophist, one of these German Catholic mystics or Rhineland mystics. A um, couple of quick joke uh, jokes. <laughs> Quotes by Jacob Bohm, or Boma, B-O-E-H-M-E. Nobody knew how to spell them, so you'll see, you'll see a variety of spellings. Jacob, J-O-K, J-A-K, J-A-C-O-B, and Boma is usually B-O-E-H-M-E. But listen to some of these things. You're not going to hear these from the pulpit of the Catholic Church, right? I am a string in the concert of God's joy. Who are you? He said, I am a string in the concert of God's joy. Pretty nice. But at the same time, that concert, he knew, was a silent concert, devoid of any physical vibration, only metaphysical vibration. So he also had quotations like these. When you remain silent from the thinking and willing of self, the eternal hearing and seeing and speaking will be revealed in you, and God will see and hear through you. Imagine, God will see and hear through you. Pretty good reason to burn this guy at the stake, don't you think? Uh, here's another one. If you could be silent from all willing and thinking for just one hour, you would hear God's inexpressible words. Or here's another. With your own seeing, you see only in your own will. So close those eyes and use that third eye to look inside. And uh, let's see. 
I want to read a couple by Toller, Johannes Toller, again one of these pre-Renaissance mystics in Europe, another German. He said, man must do his parts and detach himself from created things. Uh, doesn't that sound like a Hindu teacher or a Buddhist or a, or a Jan or a Taoist talking about detachment? He said, well, I, I didn't know there were ever Catholic priests before the Reformation, before Martin Luther, that would talk that way? Yeah, Johannes Taller. Man must do his part to detach himself from created things. Even your body, you are not that body detached from it. You are so much more. Taller also said, never believe the true prayer consists in, I like this one actually, never believe that true prayer consists in mere babbling, reciting many psalms and vigils, and saying your beads, the rosary, while you allow your thoughts to roam. There's a great Spanish mystic that came along a couple hundred years later, St. Teresa of Avila, who wrote a book about mindful prayer and uh, said essentially the same thing, that all this Catholic praying the same two prayers over and over, two prayers for 2,000 years, over and over and over and over and over again, it's just a setup for the mind to wander. So while you're saying your rosary and your prayers and doing your penance, you're thinking about dinner and uh, sex and paying the bills and how am I ever going to fix this thing that's broken and meanwhile, you just go on and on and on with your prayers, right? And to say, hey, wait a minute, maybe you should put your attention on what you're saying, was again to encounter the wrath of the church, because that was not a church teaching. The church teaching was do it methodically, do it by rote, and we don't care where your mind goes. Here's another one by Toller, one of these early, early theosophists. He said, in the most intimate, hidden, and innermost ground of the soul, God is always essentially, actively, and substantially present. Here the soul possesses everything by grace, which God possesses by nature. Again, the idea that you don't have a soul, you are a soul. And it exists now, and it's already in heaven, and each of us as a separated, fleshy, mortal being growing older with every beat of your heart is an extension of that soul that perhaps the church has it wrong when it suggests in its infallibility that upon conception God creates a new soul and tucks it inside your body and heaven is devoid of that soul until you die and only if you've been a good little boy or girl, according to the church, can you ever hope to ascend to heaven? Well, these Christian mystics say, no, no, that's not true. That's just the church and its fancy gold-plated this and its vaulted cathedrals and its expensive tapestries and linens getting all confused to making heaven this exclusive place. When the mystics have said, what could possibly be more democratic 
the fact that everybody already lives there in this middle ground between heaven and earth. Well, then we get to the capital T, Theosophy, today's class, Theosophy, then and now. Well, in 1875, a Russian mystic named Blavatsky, Helena Petrovna Blavatsky, uh, founded in 1875 a organization, a movement really, that became known as Theosophy, the, the religion of philosophy or the religion of ageless wisdom, such that today when you use the word, and many New Age people do, uh, it's been forgotten that there were these early thinkers hundreds of years ago who really set up the Reformation, which led to Martin Luther splitting off the Protestant or Protestant wing, which continues to this day to split off into smaller groups. Um, and so most people think of theosophy as the theosophical society, but around Krishnamurti, even that split away. So if you look at the old theosophical writings, you're talking about books by Blavatsky herself, primarily um, The Secret Doctrine, um, Isis Unveiled, and The Key to Theosophy, three good books. The third one, The Key to Theosophy, is very small, brief, and easy read. Isis Unveiled and The Secret Doctrine are very long very pithy, uh, very difficult reads, very difficult. Um, in fact, three-quarters of it you could probably throw out because it's Blavatsky railing against the science and philosophy of the day and spending an inordinate amount of time and space saying what's wrong with the orthodoxy and the establishment rather than just laying out her own premise, her own belief systems. Um, but the theosophical movement of the late 19th century holds that all religions, all religions, are attempts to help humanity evolve to greater perfection, and that every religion has a portion of the truth, and is supported by what Blavatsky called a spiritual hierarchy, um, and by hierarchy, imagine uh, a corporation with many, many levels and tiers. Or think of a skyscraper with 50, 80, 100 stories, and each one a little bit higher, a little bit closer to God. Not just a trinity of the physical plane with heaven in the middle and the crown, the Godhead at the top, but a whole hierarchy of saints and sages and ascended masters and your ancestors and relatives, all of them working to help us, the poor lost souls, down here living this terrifying separated existence in a world of separated form, knowing something that nobody above us has to deal with, which is fear. That is why the hierarchy would have compassion for you, because we're all so terrified. It is a necessary consequence of living as a separated being, 
in a separated world of separated forms that we are driven by fear and must learn to manage that fear and the ignorance that it's born of and leads to, that vicious cycle of fear and ignorance leading to more fear, leading to more ignorance, to transcend that so that we might have the awareness that we exist essentially as love, not as fear. And it's not that fear blocks love, but it certainly distracts us. And so most people, you say, what is love? They all begin to describe emotional feelings. The idea of love as spiritual consciousness, everywhere equally present. The unified magnetic field that allows everything to touch everything, that allows the one to create the many without being diminished or even affected in any way at all, that all of that magic is love as consciousness, not simply an emotional feeling. If you think love is an emotional feeling, Christ will never make sense. Love your enemy? I don't even love people I don't like. Why would I love this guy? I don't even like him. Why would I? And now you want me to love my enemy? Eh, get out of here. That's just for 45 minutes on Sunday. Nice platitudes. Nobody really believes that stuff. George Bush, who thinks he talks to God, and God told him to invade Iraq, how do you reconcile that? God wants these holy wars, these crusades. How do you reconcile that with love your enemy? Well, you can't, and you never will, if you think of love only as some warm, fuzzy emotion some sense of uh, okayness when in fact we're saying it's a synonym for a consciousness of harmony leading to ultimate unity so Blavatsky formed this organization uh, with a handful of other people including a guy named Henry Steele Alcott uh, William Judge, uh, Annie Besant, uh, Charles Ledbetter, and it was Blavatsky's writings uh, in the 1920s that a woman named Alice Bailey found, and she began to channel a, uh, shall I say, ascended master named D.K. Joao Cool and ended up writing 26 books as a transmedium or a channel for this ascended Tibetan master in the theosophical tradition. This organization also found a young boy in India, who they later called Krishnamurti, and trained him to be the new messiah, and was going to bring him forward in the 1950s as the new messiah, and he was all ready to come forward and do that, having been educated at uh, Cambridge and Oxford, one or the other, maybe both, actually. He got the best British and European education, and not only in philosophy and religion, but science and the arts. And here he comes, ready to, you know, come out into the world as the new Messiah, the new Christ, uh, 
and <laughs> he comes out publicly and says, do not follow me. Heaven is within, and the master, therefore, is within. Follow the dictates of your own conscience. Um, work to align your desire, the little wills of men, with divine will. Try to, you know, what would God do? Try to be that kind of a person. Um, I don't believe in organizations. So he, so <laughs> he sort of betrayed the Theosophical Society at that point. And a lot of people who were mystically oriented, these, uh, you know, or, or new age-ish, if you will, uh, thought this was wonderful, this was great. And so many theosophists began to follow the Krishnamurti leg. Many others stayed with the old school, uh, Blavatsky and Annie Besant and Charles Ledbetter and these early clairvoyant spiritual healing was a big part of it. And also these theosophical concepts that we've been talking about, that primarily the greatest heresy of all to the Catholic and even the Protestant churches is that, number one, universality, all souls are redeemed in the end, there is no hell. Or said another way, your soul is already in heaven. You exist as an extension of that individuated bit of God. You are the one life from a unique point of view. Or as my wife Doreen and I like to remind each other often throughout our day, uh, there's only one of us here. One mind, divine will. One heart, divine love. One body, the physical universe. And perhaps, perhaps there are universes that exist in other dimensions that we do not understand. That's part of the transcendent nature is understanding you'll never be able to name God or fully understand God as long as you have a brain that has as its primary function to filter out consciousness. That's one of the things the brain does is filter consciousness so, you, so that you can focus and, and deal, right? One of the biggest problems with psychedelics uh, over the years that that uh, we've experimented with psychedelics is it tends to unplug the filter, uh, kick open the jam, so to speak, <coughs> and people will say, well, remember, remember the Beatles song, It's All Too Much? the love that's shining all around you, and you just start to swoon and you can't concentrate. There's just so much reality flowing in. Even though it's a chemically induced state, it, it certainly is parallel and in so many ways identical to the spontaneous epiphanies or those brought about by contemplation and meditation that mystics have discussed and written about from time out of mind okay so that's about as much as I have time for in discussing theosophy then and now the small t theosophists of the pre-renaissance era the Rhineland mystics the German mystics so called the early theosophists and then the theosophical movement known today I just want to mention quickly the New Age 
uh, or New Thought movement that began 1820s, 1830s, about 50 years before Blavatsky and company founded the Theosophical Society. It didn't begin really as a movement, rather an aggregation of metaphysically curious philosophers, mostly European, who were just discovering Eastern philosophy. I've talked a lot about Christian mysticism today, but remember, all of Eastern religion was pervaded with mysticism. That's what Hinduism and, and the spin-off Buddhism really is, is core Eastern mysticism. Even Islam has its mystical traditions. The, the mystics of Islam are the Sufis. And, um, of course, Jewish mystics are those who study um, the secret Kabbalah and the, and the Zohar. And um, so all religious traditions have their mystics or this body of work called mysticism. In fact, the word Sufi, if it's not capitalized, but small S-U-F-I, usually refers to all mystics in general, be they Christian or Buddhist or Hindu mystics. or That's what a New Ager really is. You're a mystic. You're a metaphysician. You believe in electromagnetism and, and invisible unseen forces of consciousness that, that pre-exist the, and are independent of the physical dense brain. Most scientists will tell you consciousness comes from the brain. Well, change brain chemistry, it does change the way you think and feel, but there's a flip side to that. You change the way you think and feel, you can change brain chemistry. So how do you account for that in the chicken and the egg of am I my awareness or am I my brain? You give it enough study and thought, you're going to have to, it seems to me, come down on the side of, well, both things are true, but the prime mover has got to be my conscious awareness. And with enough meditation, a few months, a few years, a few decades of meditation, that whatever the form, whatever the format, that will become increasingly clear. The better you are at feeling safe, the better you are at becoming gentle and peaceful, the better you become at being loving, forgiving, and compassionate, the more likely you are to see your divine nature and to appreciate that. And then have a, a balance between your spiritual nature and your physical nature. To be in the world, but not of the world. You do have to be in the world. You have stuff to do. But you can also not be of the world. That is to say, you can know that you are much more than that. Okay, let's go to your comments and your questions by text or by telephone. Again, if you're on the uh, telephone now and I see callers, uh, you can, by pressing star 2, raise your hand. Right now, I don't see anybody's hand raised, but you can do that by pressing star 2. Just do it once. You press the asterisk and 2 a second time, it'll lower your hand. And so let me go back to the 
text questions and comments and say hello to everybody. First of all, in Cheshire, England, this is me wife's cousin, Alan, who has come on, and he's talking a bit about Eastern religion today, saying hello. Um, Alan has occasion to do business in India. He has some exposure to all of this, as well as Western mysticism and Kabbalah and Rosicrucianism. And uh, he says, uh, we talk a lot about the Eastern traditions with admiration and uh, aspiration. I wish this were true of all the modern-day East, especially India. My experience with many uh, Indians, Hindus, Buddhists, Muslims, is um, they have a means to an end mentally. If the consequences of the untruths give the required outcome, the fact that uh, misconduct or the withholding of truth along the way gets the desired outcome, then everybody should forget the method of the outcome and just be delighted that we've received it, that we got what we wanted. He says, I think this applies to the path of lies that many people travel. Unfortunately, it's rare that the path leads to fulfillment, even when the desired outcome is achieved. And say hello to me cousin Doreen. Thank you, Ellen, for popping in and saying hi. In Albuquerque, Diane Loff is with us. She says uh, hello. Hope this finds you well in beautiful Hawaii. The last few classes have been great. Perfect topics. Thank you, Diane. And thanks back at you. And aloha, Diane. And Albuquerque is a beautiful place as well, I must say. And good Mexican food. <laughs> In Los Osos, not far from uh, San Luis Obispo, they're on the California coast. Philip says, hello, Michael. I look forward to your webinars and podcasts. I've received much value for my personal growth at 60 years of age. In the late 1970s, I started reading Seth and Theosophy books and Alice Bailey books on Lucius Press, and they gave me much insight into the metaphysical uh, love you shows and information, Philip. Yeah, there you go. Alice Bailey came out of the Blavatsky and Seth, he's another trans medium. Jane Roberts was the author, and she channeled a multi-dimensional entity named Seth. Very popular today are the um, uh, the books that The Secret was based on, the Esther Hicks books. Again, trans mediumship. Make of that what you will. My, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, my feeling is that Virtually all, the vast majority, if not all, trans channelers and so-called mediums are channeling their own higher self. They're channeling themselves. They are intuiting their own oversoul. But if you ask them, they have much more romantic versions. Jane Roberts would say, oh no, this is Seth. And Esther Hicks says, oh no, this is Abraham. And uh, there's dozens and dozens of these, um, I'm trying to think of Lazarus, his real name is Jack something or other, and that woman in the Northwest, uh, uh, there's a lot of these trans mediums. And, but the truth, I, I, I don't know, I think what you have to do is take all of this trans mediumship with a grain of salt and 
say, do I really care where it comes from? What matters is the quality of the information, and does it resonate? Does it ring true for me from within? That's the important thing. Don't get too caught up in the glamour, which is emotional distortion around the idea of transmediumship. Bailey, transmedium, channeling DK, Joel Cool, profound, remarkably intelligent stuff. To the point, and I love Seth, to the point that personally I, I just speak for myself. I don't see what difference it makes where the information comes from. Excuse me, is that the New Testament or is that Shakespeare? Or is that some Sufi mystic from the Middle Ages? Or did Buddha say that? No, it was my friend Harry down the block. He said, (laughs) what difference does it make where it comes from if in your quiet moments, with your eyes closed and your emotional nature calm?" and the mental nature quiet, it speaks to you and it resonates, then I would say trust it and value it and develop it from there. In Lake Charles, not sure if that's Lake Charles, California, or Louisiana, or exactly where, but Richard is in Lake Charles, and he says, no question, just wanted to let you know how glad I am to be listening again. Thank you. Thank you, Richard. Glad to have you on board. In Tucson, Lorelai's with us uh, again this week. Aloha, Michael. Thanks for bringing enlightenment to my world. You've really made a difference in my life and many others. Thanks for being there. Peace and love to you and Doreen. Always Lorelai. Thank you, Lorelai. Robert in Irvine says, Hi, Michael. Been studying the science of mind for many years. And one of my favorite quotes from Ernest Holmes is that what you are seeking for, uh, hold on, that which you are seeking for you are seeking with. I think there's something missing here. Reminding us of our true selves and our oneness uh, and perfection in the Creator. Uh, that what we're looking for is, that which we're looking for is looking for us, maybe is what we're saying. Um, yeah, I didn't get to talk a whole lot about the uh, new thought movement of the early 1800s, but that's where both Ernest Holmes' Science of Mind and also if you're familiar with the Unity branch of Christianity, if you will, these are the two primary schools of metaphysical Christianity today. Religious science based on the Science of Mind by Ernest Holmes and Unity. You're finding a lot of religious science churches are changing their name, however, so as not to be confused with Christian science or Scientology. And so religious science in Venice and Ocean Park became the Agape Center, where Michael Beckwith holds forth, or up in Simi Valley, the religious science churches, Simi Valley is now called the One Spirit Center. Uh, religious science done in Huntington Beach recently changed its name. Um, I forget the name of it. It's like an Eastern term. But they're all religious science-based. And then there are many unity churches um, around. Then they come out of... Um, Missouri and the writings of Charles Fillmore and his wife 
and all of them, the Fillmores, um, Ernest Holmes. Ernest Holmes has a brother who started a branch of religious science in Japan that's very popular uh, throughout Asia and here in Hawaii uh, also among Japanese people. All that came out of the work of Phineas Park Quimby and Emma Curtis Thompson. I think I'm saying that right. Um, in the early 1800s in New England. And that's definitely part of so-called New Age as well. In Irvine, Robert Fiegel is with us too. He says, Aloha, Michael. Uh, seems there is panic and confusion in the air with regards the American public. Even if people are miserable and suffering, they're content keeping the status quo because that's what they're familiar with and used to. Uh, change, even when it's in their own best interest, is scary and unknown. It's always the few who are willing to risk making changes for the betterment of the many. Excellent class, Michael. Thanks for the insight and awareness. Have a magical week. Yeah, I guess that's a reference to these crazy town halls and health care. And um, psychologists talk a lot about the comfort zone, but... Robert makes a very good point. This is not about the comfort zone. It's about the familiarity zone. And people like what they're familiar with, even if it's painful and doesn't work. You know, so we look at these old sick people standing up saying, you know, keep the government out of my Medicare. <laughs> and, of course, government is Medicare. That's all we're trying to do here is create some sort of Medicare for everybody. But uh, ignorance is a powerful thing. It really is. In Honolulu, Bert's with us again. He says, thanks a lot for today's lesson. Could you possibly do a show sometime about the family? Yeah, these are the people, the born-agains that own that house, that brothel on C Street. Um, Born-again adulterers. And uh, their version of Christianity, which is basically um, fascist Christianity. Forget all this helping the poor. You are rich and powerful because God wants you to be rich and powerful, and you can do whatever you want. It's corrupt. So much, so much of the most fundamental Christianity is corrupt that it's a burden for many others to say, you know, there's a lot of good stuff here. I mean, there's a lot of one to read those, the red stuff, maybe just forget the church and read what Christ said and make of it what you will, right? There's no proselytizing in there, and there's, there's no fear in there, and there's no threats of I'll kill you, I hate you, there's no racism in there, there's Nothing in the New Testament about abandoning your neighbor in New Orleans and blaming the local government. And, oh, my Lord. Okay. Uh, and Donna from Albuquerque makes a very good point. And she says, I'd like to, uh, she says, I enjoy your talks. I'd like to hear less theory and more. How can I make my life work better today? Donna, that's what the Focus Passion site is all about. So what you're saying is that's what you're looking for, the personal development stuff, and that's what Steve and I do every week. It's studio quality. There's two of us. 
We put an enormous amount of work into practical, portable tools and techniques. The series is called Finding Yourself in Paradise, and it is a premium audio program. So it's like a podcast, but we request 99 cents for the program. We bill you monthly at 396. You can subscribe and unsubscribe and resubscribe and unsubscribe as often as you want. It's easy to do. All the management tools are right there online for you. In fact, if I recall, you are, you are already signed up on that program and uh, should be getting those in the built-in player. You can also send them to your iTunes or use the RSS feeder in your favorite browser, but that's what you're looking for. And uh seems to me you just signed up for that a couple of weeks ago. So I, I mentioned it for others who may feel the same way. If we're going to do a lot of free products and then one premium product to help keep us commercial free, that's what you're looking at. And so we have a lot of people that subscribe to that, uh, and they may listen to that and not this or listen to this and not that, but they like to subscribe because, you know, for what a gallon of milk costs, uh, for uh uh, uh, the cost of a can of soup, three ninety six a month, you get a program every week. Some months are four programs, some months are five programs. Uh, three ninety six a month is all you're ever billed. And if you can see see your way clear to do that, as Donna and and others have done, that's where you're going to get the really practical, portable, use it in your daily life and affairs, uh, trickle down of this class, which is often esoteric and going to be esoteric. Okay, um, checking back with the phone callers, uh, everybody's still bashful this week. I haven't had a caller in weeks who wanted to raise their hand and have me unmute them long enough to ask the question on the telephone, and that's okay. We'll continue to have that available to you. So you can not only listen by the web or by phone, but participate in either uh, either medium. Well, it's almost half past. Let's do a quick little visualization about theosophy and and the new age, and uh, make an attempt to install uh, the uh, metaphysics and the mysticism of theosophy then and now. Reminding you that this program goes into replay within minutes of its conclusion, and by Tuesday or Wednesday is available as a podcast in all the podcast directories, including the iTunes Music Store. So, if this is a good time for you, pump up those pillows, sit straight but not rigid, be erect but balanced. Your head balanced, do a couple of head rolls. And then balance your head on your neck and your shoulders. Let your shoulders fall back to open up the rib cage. And take two or three slow, deep breaths from the diaphragm, filling, filling your lungs. Hold for just a moment before you exhale fully and completely beyond where you'd normally stop all the way out. 
And do that three or four times at your own rate, as slowly as you can. In through the nose, hold for just a moment, exhale just as slowly out through the nose or the mouth. But ideally, breathe in through the nose if you can. And then allow your breathing to find a natural rhythm or cadence. And gently move your awareness from wherever it resides in your head or body. Wherever that awareness usually resides, move it to the bottom of your nose to that ridge line of cartilage between the nostrils at the very point where air enters and leaves the body. And gently and effortlessly, as if you exist as a little pinpoint of awareness on the bottom of your nose, watch your body breathing itself all by itself. Create and sense within your body a feeling of deep relaxation, feeling very, very safe, very relaxed. And consider any thought other than I'm watching my breath a distraction. Let it go. Don't fight it. Just drop it and gently repeatedly if necessary put your attention back on the bottom of your nose and watch your breath this for many tens of millions of people all around the world is their lifetime practice this meditation to simply watch the breath for soon in a matter of minutes, perhaps days, certainly within a few weeks of a practice like this, you'll begin to feel as if you're watching somebody else's body doing the breathing. Like you, the watcher or the witness, is somehow detached from this body that's doing the automatic breathing. And then it's a short step to learning to mindfully detach from your thoughts and actually choose which thoughts to respect and which thoughts to release. Which feelings to embrace and which need insight and understanding by dwelling gently upon the hurt or the upset. This ability, this means of detachment, of taking one step back to see the bigger picture, to really comprehend, is a natural consequence of watching your breath. Through that mindfulness, the mystics of all religions and all ages, in all cultures and all times, say we will discern 
or intuit a sense of wisdom, a point of view so elevated, so inclusive, and so complete as to provide a quality of peace heretofore unknown. A degree of safety largely unimagined. A perspective on your values, your morals and ethics that leaves little room for doubt or question about the type of person you naturally are. Not instinctively, but innately, available through intuition. Not instinct, but intuition. Instinct is of our animal nature. Intuition is of our spiritual nature. Instinct is wonderful as an automatic, fight-or-flight, fear-response when we face real danger or even imaginary danger but to be able to feel safe to breathe and relax is to let go of instinct and open yourself to intuition an understanding that is more inclusive more comprehensive more harmonious revealing quality of self that you could only guess at before. A kinder and wiser, more gentle sense of self. A timeless, peaceful being. More tolerant, more patient, more generous, more forgiving, more compassionate, more spiritual, more truthful, more godlike. And that higher self is alive now, standing above you and behind you, as close as your own breath. Divinity, from a particular point of view, that you may experience this life and that the one life can know through your experience as an individuated bit of the one life. The all-knowing, the all-powerful, the everywhere equally present has the experience of being you and sees through your eyes and feels through your heart not so much when you're afraid but to an ever greater degree as you allow yourself to feel safe calm peaceful and relaxed Be silent, be still, 
calm your emotional nature and quiet even the mind by letting go. And soon all of the distractions of the physical world with your eyes closed will be replaced by an awareness greatly expanded of your potential to receive inspiration intuitively and to express that beauty, that love, and that truth out into the world, needing nothing in return. To give unconditionally love and kindness, forgiveness and compassion, needing nothing in return for your source overshadows. And that love, that truth, and that beauty is unconditional. Infinite and eternal. Tell yourself that this peace of mind, this safe and relaxed countenance, can be carried by you back into the waking state, into your daily life and affairs. In fact, as we end this class and you move on into your life today, see how long you can maintain this awareness. I don't mean hold on to it. Certainly don't grip or clutch it. Hold it gently, the awareness of the higher self the truth of your divinity, how long can that be managed? How long can you remain aware in a physical dense world, bombarded by stimulus, visual, auditory, kinesthetic, olfactory, gustatory, all the stimulus, how long before it distracts you? And then return to your daily meditation. Just like recharging your cell phone. Plug in. Say to yourself now simply, silently and internally, and so it is. And so it is. There's nothing to believe here except that you are magnificent, eternal, infinite, and much more than you've ever believed. And you can handle that. Bring that with you gently into the waking state as you now. Take a slow, deep breath, inhaling. Fill your lungs fully, completely. And now, uh, exhale. Feel a letting go. Open your eyes, wide awake, alert, feeling refreshed and rested, feeling really good. And thank you very much for being in class today. Go to FocusedPassion.com. And check out the personal development, the, the material that Donna's asking for that she says is practical and, and the stuff we can apply in our daily life and affairs. We've got that for you as well. In a premium audio program, they're usually 45 minutes to an hour. Compelling conversation, Steve and I, back and forth together. You sort of eavesdrop. And also guided meditations like the one we just finished. 
focused on personal development, on your potential as a human being, practical tools for practical problems, everyday stuff. It's all there at FocusedPassion.com. Remember the ED, FocusedPassion.com. Get the free programs. Just leave a name and an email address. Choose a password. You get six free programs, complete programs, for free. Right, And if you like it, then come back and leave your credit card information, your ATM card, and try it out. If you don't like it, unsubscribe. If it didn't meet your expectations in any way at all, let us know. We'll refund your month. I think you're going to like it. Most people do. And that's really the way we support all of the other work that we do. $0.99 cents a week. Check it out. And uh, how about meditating on it? See what the higher self says about listening not only to this, but the Focus Passion programs as well. And if you're in Hawaii, and uh, especially on the Big Island or willing to travel, remember we've got a seminar, Steve and I and our friend Larry Shawanka, Saturday, September 5th, Hilo, Hawaii, from 9 in the morning to 1 in the afternoon, all on self-awareness. That's Saturday, September 5th in Hilo, Hawaii. Um, For more information, we've got a bunch of websites set up. I guess for you, to make sure you get a discount, I'll give you a 25% off if you email me, and I'll give you the right link for the discount. Email me at mb at theagelesswisdom.com, mb at theagelesswisdom.com. And as always, be gentle, love life, and take care of each other. From Maui, Hawaii, aloha.